Welcome to Polycast, a civilization podcast focused on game strategy. Canis Albinas. Makalua. The Man Team. Mega Bears Fan. Hello, and welcome to episode 378 of Polycast. I'm Christy, not here because Mackie's currently under however many feet of snow in Texas. And I'm joined by the usual calls of Kenneth Albinus. We got plenty of snow here. The me and team. Always bringing rebalance to the map. And a relatively quiet Mega Bears fan. If my audio sounds like crap, I'm sorry. I guess that's what you get for letting your kid use the computer one time for remote learning. <laughs> Ooh, dear. You had one job! One job not to break everything. Oh, that, that could explain a lot, actually. Was oh, it dear. Skype or Zoom? Uh, I don't know, but it should have been on another user profile, which means it should not have affected anything on my account, but who knows. It's Windows, so it affects everything. Yeah, yeah shouldness versus what happens is two different concepts, unfortunately. Yep. lot of practice at this but we had a big patch a month ago well because we missed last week's episode or last uh episode due to illness we are still talking about the recently released vietnam pack and kubla Khan. so has anybody had a chance to play with them both of them several times they're I mean, it's interesting, in particular, you have to, you really do have to adjust your playstyle, obviously, with Vietnam, since you can only put your districts on features, which kind of makes your initial thought of where everything goes very different. Yeah, not, oh, and being I played to, uh, not being able to tuck your industrial hubs into floodplains in between dams and aqueducts, uh, that, that, was, that kept catching me off guard, because you can't yeah, that was the biggest thing that... on uh, floodplains. Yeah, that was the biggest thing that screwed me over the first time, because I thought floodplains and marsh were interchangeable, but apparently not. Yeah, bad habits from Civ Five, I guess. Well, and they both got the bonus from the uh, from the Pantheon, but that doesn't mean they're the same thing, I guess. Desert floodplains. Well, yeah. But there are other places such as, there are other places, other floodplains now that are not desert, don't get bonus, which is Yeah. The other thing interesting, obviously, about the leader ability for Vietnam is um, you really, you really, not only the fact that you're trying to put your districts in the in the removal features, you're trying to keep all your units in them, which, in essence, is a bit weird. So you're trying to put them into rough terrain so that they can move further, although they're usually then moving through more rough terrain. So it's kind of a lot of the time it didn't, it kind of cancels out. Although the combat strength bonus is kind of handy. Yeah, you really want to have a general so that you have that uh, extra movement with your units when you're going in and out of uh, like woods and rainforests. That way you can get out of a of a wooded hill with like five movement. Yeah, it helps a lot. I feel like you always want a general if you're doing significant work with units beyond just defending cities. 
Well, true. I found even more so if you're going to go out of your way to go through rough terrain. Yeah. Yeah, the extra one on like, top of your ability was kind of should kind of end up getting your move into like the like the four or five point trigger where you can effectively do do two rough tiles. You're still at a big advantage in those terrains, though, because you'll often be able to attack when the opposing units cannot. In addition to having your plus five being in there as well, like good luck getting a Vietnamese unit out of a wooded hill, yeah. especially if it's in their land. I found myself not liking. Vietnam all that much because of the district placement, but I did enjoy being able to plant forests very early. Uh, you can start planting forests at civil service, I think. Medieval fairs, I believe. Medieval fairs, somewhere, somewhere, around, somewhere, there. somewhere around there. Something in that neighborhood. And um, it is true that the the Thanth district is nice. It's not particularly useful unless you are going for a tourism game or a military game. Well, I think it's slightly interesting in that because it doesn't count as a specialty, obviously you can throw it anywhere and then it's it doesn't have the population requirement, so if you have you know, a couple of turns, you can basically throw it down even if it's just the base district. I mean, most of the time when I'm playing I'm, I'm not even thinking of putting down encampments because I'm like, oh, there's, other, there's lots of other more useful districts I find, but at least in this case it's like Oh, hey, you know, okay, we can throw it down, might get some culture, and maybe down the line I can throw a barracks in and get a little bit of production. Well, it's, it's something like, what, two culture per adjacent district? So it's like, that's like four times what you would get in adjacency bonus from a regular theater district. So, yeah. I mean, if you just want culture to go through the civics tree, like, the, the unique encampment is pretty darn good for that. Basically, I'd bung it down a wonder and surround to get by theater squares. And then you build a crap ton of them, and suddenly you're popping out like every general in the game. So you'll have no shortage of generals if you're just building these things everywhere that you can. Yeah, it's not like you uh, can't use those both inside and outside of uh, the rough terrain. You get the general bonus and that. So that's pretty useful. And if you're getting down into cores and armies earlier than usual, then this is actually a pretty solid uh, military setup. In particular, if you're getting lots of generals, you can also you're getting more retirement benefits as well. I mean, especially since they added a few extra in this patch, there's a few, there's a few that are a little less military focused and actually have a somewhat of a slight benefit. Yeah, they tend to <laughs> not be as good as like Grand Columbia's generals, but uh, they're still pretty good. Grand Columbia has double generals, though. Well, yeah, mm. but some of their generals also have, like, really crazy strong retirement bonuses. Like, one of them is, like, an extra trade route and, you know, things like that. You don't get those sorts of things from the regular generals. At least I haven't seen them. I think Usually one of the not. new generals who is a Vietnamese general is, like, 25% warrior-ness or something. I, don't, I forget what it is, but there's something, there's something that's now an interesting early general that isn't Sun Tzu. That's kind of worth getting just even purely for the retirement bonus a little later on. Today I learned that all era generals were Asian. <laughs> but that's, prob that's probably not surprising since Asia was settled a little earlier and also had a lot more war, so... Yeah, when you think about Europe, you know, there's very little in terms of generals until you start getting into the era of like Hannibal and Boadicea and all that, which is Alexander. probably what, yeah, classical like stuff. Classical, into, classical early medieval sort of thing. Well, of the major early civilizations, four out of the five were in eight. 
And the only one that wasn't was very Asia adjacent. And E for Egypt is an African nation only. Because that's where the capital is. I have not played with Mongolia yet, or China, as Kublai Khan. I don't remember exactly what his unique thing is. It's something to do with trade routes, right? He gets a, he gets a bonus eco-slot, and then all of his... When he establishes a trading post in another major civ, I think it's only major civ, I don't think it worked for him in city-states, but he gets a random Eureka and inspiration. But it's only on the first establishment, so it's kind of... Is that once limited. per save total? Once per save, yes. Okay. It's once per save. It's a little somewhat limited in scope, although some could say, you know, you're getting eight Eurekas and Inspirations for free over the course of the game, which is like, what, four techs, four civics, basically. I would have yeah. to double-check the in-game text, because I'm pretty sure that in most cases when Civilization Six says Civilization, it does include city-states. Yeah, I'm trying to remember. It's been a while since I played it, so I don't recall it. it yeah, the, the way the text specifically says in another civilization's city. But then again, it, the text in Civ 6 isn't always great. Uh, case in point, with Vietnam, her leader ability says all units get the combat and movement bonuses for the uh, features, but I've been playing with them and I double-checked, and it's only land units. So, naval units that bombard onto, say, a forest tile do not get the combat bonus, and air units that start their turn deployed on rough terrain or in an aerodrome that is built on rough terrain, because, you know, you can build an aerodrome on the rough terrain, uh, they do not get any movement or range or combat bonuses either. So, uh, I don't know if that's a mistake in the text or if it's a, you know, bug in the way that the thing is working, I don't know which it's intended to be, but I err on the side of it's a mistake in the text. Yeah, it's probably a text bug rather than, or UI bug rather than a mechanical bug. It would be a little odd if the act of firing into the trees was easier for Vietnamese ships or something. Well, that's the way that it works with uh, range units in general. Is It's not the unit that the range unit is standing on, it's the, uh, it's the tile that it's firing into. And there's been other bonuses in the past, like rough terrain bonuses and stuff. Like, you know, some civs get bonuses for attacking onto hills or whatever. And in the case of, like, a crossbow, that means you can stand on a flatland and fire onto the hill and you get the combat bonus. Okay, but that is awkward, though. I do think it is... I think the mechanics, like, yes, it is, I think it's definitely a text thing, but mechanically, it also actually affects religious units, I found. Oh, does it? I had not uh, yeah. noticed that. Yeah, I noticed that it actually affects theological combat as well, so... I shall have to make a note of that for the strategy guide that I'm working on. Yeah, it's a very weird, like, that plus, I think does. I think there's one other civilization that actually does affect... Theological combats that you don't that you wouldn't think it does at first glance, but I can't remember which one it is. But yeah, I play Kublai as Mongolia just purely because you know he basically his ability synchronizes well with Mongolia's instant trading post establishment, so you can you can pick up your Eureka's pretty early, although or pretty quickly, even though they're not going to be as powerful. Yeah, surface reading definitely makes Kublai Khan look like he plays better with Mongolia than with China. Hmm. It's also even more fun if you, you know, if you're, if you're combined with the them societies and Elza Minerva, because holy, that's a lot of policy slots. Like if you can get Elza Minerva, by the time you're already getting the first couple of, uh, by the time you're already getting the code of laws, you can basically slot both of them in right away. Then build the policy slot adders. 
the yeah. wonders. And then build even more of them. Like you, you can have was it like fourteen, fifty? It could be probably even more than that. Lots. Let's lots. just say lots. Did you play around with the Vietnam's uh, Voi Chien unique unit at all? Because uh, I found that uh, that unit's pretty boss. Yeah, it, it was one. interesting. I uh, built one. I didn't use it though. Yeah, having the ability to move after attacking on like a crossbow unit is pretty darn powerful and then you combine that with all the extra bonuses from like the rough terrain and stuff especially the movement uh, you get that thing promoted real quick and you get that extra combat move per turn and like suddenly these things are better than catapults at sieging cities because you can move in to city to range to bombard and then move out so the city can't attack you which you know is always the problem with catapults is you get one shot off and then the city kills you with uh, its bombardment and then you know usually a ranged unit inside but with uh, these Voichen bad boys like oh man they just destroy <laughs> these cities like I, I feel like saying it's better than a catapult is selling a unit a little short here. I, I know what you're getting at, but it just sounded funny to me. Well, they, they don't do as much damage to the walls per turn, but when you're getting two attacks per turn and you're not taking an, a counterattack back, like, yeah, that's the net effect. Yeah. The Void Chain yeah. is kind of like what the Domray wishes it was. And unlike Catapults, you can actually use them against other units without wanting to, like, stab yourself. Yes, I think just stabbing them as well. It's, it's interesting. Yeah. I forget what it was like. Is afraid if it's like three or four base movement, but yeah, that's and thirty-five strength is a thirty, and all you pay is an extra, well, sixty gold from the purchase cost. I think, isn't it? Seven eighty instead of seven twenty. Right, and they upgrade from regular archers, which means you don't have to like hard train them in all your cities when you unlock them, which has been the problem with uh, some other unique units, including I think the um, Domray, uh, the other Domray samurai, Kevser, all that sort of stuff, berserkers. So, yeah, these are, uh, I, I mean, I, I've just been playing, only played one game so far with Vietnam, but, like, the, this unique unit has, like, catapulted itself to being one of my favorite unique units in the game. I think it's it's one of the better ones, for sure. Yeah, it's early, it's strong. There's not a lot to dislike there. There's obviously one other big thing about the, uh, about the patch last month that we still have to cover, and that's the brand new game mode. Monopolies and corporations, they're fun. They're fun, and still very broken. It's okay, right now, though, because everybody gets the broken. Yeah, but it's it's the bad kind of broken. It's the, you suddenly win a tourism victory within 150 turns because your luxuries are giving you a 300% tourism bonus modifier in the medieval era. Sort of broken. How does that happen? Because I can't get corporations until much later. But it's not even the corporation, it's just having the act of having a monopoly. It, apparently it's some interesting kind of formula between number of other saves in the game that don't have access to the resource times the amount you have or something. I don't, it's, um, I, I don't claim to know the actual formula. All we know is that it's, from what I've read around there, apparently it's hard-coded and no modder is able to fix it. Of course. I actually tried yeah. playing this game mode this week, uh, but unfortunately I got swarmed by like three barbarian outposts all around my capital city and had to abandon the game. They yeah, but that's been made more fun because they reduced the anti anti cav bonus to plus five and plus ten. All three barbarian encampments spawned like within a few turns of a city state, and their scout found that city state and started spawning like crap tons of units, and then they all came from me. 
I still think that should be considered bugged. Like, the whole point of scouting is to find where the target is. Well, what happened was I had sent out my units to go clear the outpost, not knowing that they had scouted a city, and so I guess they just saw my units and then followed them back home because I had to retreat. They do have a weird attraction to the player character, to the player in the game. Yeah, I'm also on like Emperor difficulty, so I don't know how that affects barbarian behavior other than that they spawn more frequently, but I my suspicion is that the difficulties above like King also make the barbarians focus more on the player sieve than on other sieves. But I don't I wonder. Know. I don't think that I would be surprised if that's true. If they bothered to do different code for the barbarian unit behavior on different that would difficulties. Be hard to... That would be hard to do. Yeah, that's not something I'd anticipate. Now, of course, the AI with its bonuses will do much better against barbarians on the higher difficulties anyway. Um, but if you play in deity, then also land gets claimed so quickly that you just get, after the initial turns, you just don't get as many barbarians because there's no space. Oh, the other thing we got was the uh, preserve district, which I also used a few times, and it is considerably better than we thought it might be when we talked about it like a month ago. Funny thing is, I've built one. I built one. I didn't like it. Well, here's the thing. From what I can tell, it looks like their bonuses stack. So if you put uh, preserves, um, like, uh, in different cities, like, one or two tiles apart from each other so that they overlap one or two tiles, it looks, and then you build the grove or whatever, it looks like the yield bonuses do stack, which uh, can get pretty good pretty quickly. I've seen a screenshot, I think it was on Reddit, where basically someone that's managed to surround a tile with enough of them to basically have six of every yield. <laughs> that's pretty impressive. But it's also pretty expensive. Yeah. yeah there's, yep. there's a lot of effort involved in putting them in, and obviously appeal is something that you can only somewhat control. Right, and to be fair, I was using them with Vietnam, so I had like rainforests and woods everywhere anyway, and they were buffing those tiles. So, you know, they were already decent tiles to begin with. So, you know, maybe not with every civilization, they're quite as good. Uh, Also, I'm still not convinced that they're, you know, they're still a specialty district. I pretty much only put them down to play around with them and see what they did. Uh, I definitely would not be putting down a sanctuary or a preserve before, you know, a campus or a commercial hub. I think the only time I the only time I did build it was because of uh, Tech and Civic Shuffle basically making it so I only really had that and something else as uh, as specialty district options. I was like, eh, sure, whatever, throw it down. Just put an encampment in every city. Go, go, go. I also had one of them that was uh, next to a Natural Wonder that adjacent or that buffs adjacent terrain as well. So you know, it's stacked with that too. So. You know. And the, the other thing I've seen to make them interesting is if you're playing Yinkas. Because they'll buff, because the mountains are always breathtaking. And if you uh, also combine them with the Governor Reyna and the Forest uh, Management Promotion that gives plus two gold on all those unimproved features, again, it, it it is actually a considerable amount of yield, and it's you know, you're getting it on every adjacent tile, so that's potentially up to six tiles. Although in practice, it'll probably only be more like three or four because you're usually putting them next to a mountain or something that's not workable. Finally got the list of resource industry effects. 
I've yeah, noticed quite... that a, a lot of the ones that are um, not a big, no, they're not used nowadays, like tobacco, ivory, and whales are all military unit production increases. Yeah, some of them kind of makes it interesting how they how they're related. Like, I can understand several of the hefty food ones being growth and housing and diamonds are worth gold, but how do how do Why? furs make how do furs make civilians cheaper? I guess because it's cheaper to make coats. Probably. Also, why is why is citrus a military unit buff? Yeah, you'd think that would be one of the big foodie ones for. You have to remove scurvy. Is it a naval unit buff though? Because yes, remove scurvy. Carrying citrus around on ships was a big deal for preventing scurvy. Yeah, line. Definitely see it as a naval unit buff. Like most of them do make sense. Incense giving extra faith for one. Yeah, I don't really is associated that that way. Like as far back as it's had these bonuses at all, incense has been faith related. I'm still not sure why gypsum even exists in the game. Just to have another varied quarry resource, I guess. Because it's only really that in stone that Goron quarries up marble as well. Marble seems to be very rare, though. I hardly ever find it in games, and if I do, it's like two sources. Ironically, the first one I got was marble. The first, uh, uh, whatever, what's it called? Industry. Man, those resources have fallen off since Civ 4. Stone yeah, and marble used to be ridiculous. Stone was too. percent to wonders. It was a hundred percent. It was a hundred percent to some wonders. I think Civ Five just made it so that marble gave you a bonus production towards any wonder. It was a much smaller bonus, but it was for anyone. Yeah, yeah. The economics were such in four that you would intentionally fail wonders for gold because the hammer investment was so good. If you had multiple wonder boosters, like if you had marble and industrious, you could get a lot of money just starting junk wonders and not finishing them. All right. I think we can move on to the next topic, which is the next month patch that we're going to get. This one looks fun. <laughs> yes, indeed. Although I haven't seen... Um, I've seen the video. I haven't seen like specific numbers attached to this. I don't know if we have those yet. We don't have them yet, I don't believe. So we've got Barbarian Clans Mode, improvement to AI handling of aircraft, leader selection pool, natural wonder reworks and rebalance, and uh, government policy card slot changes are the uh, five things announced. Barbarian Clans sounds interesting, and we're going to get the uh, reintroduction of barbarians eventually founding cities uh, with that. Yes, it seems so, as if they, if they reform, they'll form a new city-state. But one yeah. that's already from you know the existing pool of city states. I'm not sure if that if the type is directly related. The only example I think we got was a camp turning into Valletta. So I'm not sure if they'll always become militaristic city states or if it's just completely random and that was just what happened to to spawn that time. I wonder if it if it's um based on like how you interact with them. Like maybe if you're giving them a lot of money, bribing them to go away or to attack other players, maybe they become mercantile. That would be cool. 
they they are introducing the ability to speed up their creation of cities. So it would make sense if the way you interact with them would influence uh, what they develop into. We did get clarification in the social media post that if the number of city-states allowed is already maxed, barbarians cannot add to that number. Ah, okay, so that was a technical consideration. I think I brought that up at one point, that that was the way that uh, Civ Five worked, is there was a limit to how many civs and city-states could be in the game, and I assumed Civ Six worked the same, which is you know, why we, we've seen this proposed by people since city-states came out for Civ Five, and uh, it was just never technically feasible before because of the way the game worked on the back end, but... Limit is, what, 24, I think? Is it? I think it's 24. Or at least it was in Civ 5. I th- 23, 22, something. I, I, like, default, it's always one and a half times the number of players, but I think the max is, like, I think the max was 24, because yeah. it was, like, double the 12. Yeah, there was a hard-coded max in there somewhere, and it was, yeah, something like 24 or 32 or something like that. That makes you wonder what would be the ideal amount of city seats to start with if you're playing with Barbarian Clans. Hmm, yeah. We don't know how much buffer there is. Well, it should depend on the number of civs in your difficulty level, too, I would imagine, because you only get so many barbarian encampments uh, before land gets settled. There's also the thought of if an AI takes, you know, defeats a city-state, which they sometimes still do, and take it over, would then, would then they be able to, would the bard spin be able to add another city-state to the list? But I, does then that ruin things if you try and liberate the previous city-state? Yeah, I would assume yeah. that you you can't add an extra bar because of the fact that that city-state could be liberated. Like, what would happen to that city-state then if you liberated it? Would it just disappear? <laughs> Turn back into barbarians? <laughs> Crash the game? Yeah, yeah. it probably treats the Civ uh, still existing yeah, in terms of the city-state. Yeah. I would think it would have to. It did show us the interactions we could have with the barbarian clans, and there's an interesting mix, like... Obviously, the obligatory pay them off to attack someone. Who knows if that'll work as well as bribing AI. You can buy their best unit, and since they are supposedly going to get uh, random unique units from civs that are not in the game, uh, that could occasionally be interesting, as you might get your hands on something pretty good, depending. Now, did like the, an eagle warrior. Did it confirm that you permanently get that unit, or is it like levying a city-state where you get it for like 20 turns or whatever? Uh, they it weren't looked clear like on that. A per- it looked like it's going to be a permanent thing because I think the again obviously these uh, numbers are subject to being tweaked and it was just for the showcase of the like the dev diary but I think they paid like nearly 160 or 180 gold or something and got the eagle warrior and it has a cooldown like every 10 turns or something so yeah usually when you levy a city state unit there's a little like clock icon above the unit flag that shows that it's a temporary unit and i do not recall seeing that in the uh video dev update so i'm assuming you permanently get the unit but i don't know for sure i'm under the impression it is especially because it spawns us directly in your territory so I think it would count as your unit and be based on the city. It would spawn in. It would also get the bonuses from like from an encampment or everything else that's placed in there. I don't know if they said there's going to be a developer stream this week or not. Uh, usually they do, but then again, it was out on Thursday. Today is the Saturday before, so... Who knows? Well, the other interesting thing about this clans vote is if you were to play it, what's then the best tactic? Do you want them to turn into city-states for trade routes and envoys, or do you want to kill them for gold? 
and prestige and all that other fun stuff and being like, rawr, I'm smashing bards, yay. I wonder if you could get them to form a city-state and just immediately shank them to get a city. That might be useful. It's an interesting toss, especially, I guess it would depend on how many units they end up spawning. Like, what if the barb clan basically keeps all their units as soon as they turn into a city-state? Yeah, that could be a little bit more challenging then. Or would it just spawn with the default? I think it's, what is it, two or three warriors that a city-state gets? Or base units? What, how long do we does it take to become a city state? Because it depends on their civilization level, or their civiliz- civilized level, civilized level. And question becomes: Is it cheaper to just build a settler and get rid of it than just wait till the Valera when it's finally done? Well, I mean, you could do both, you know. So yeah, plant the settler somewhere else, unless you're out of room. Or if for some reason some other sieve comes along and says, hey, I'm going to eat this. Yeah, well, there's always that risk, too. But that might be a good thing. You'd have to evaluate the situation, uh, depending on where the barb camp is located and how quickly you can get stuff settled versus like rushing out of their sieves versus whatever to not always handle them set the same way. It could be. I guess be maybe... Maybe it would be better to, you know, fix city-state interactions such that we can actually defend our city-states rather than adding more. Well, that would be nice, too, yes. Uh, (laughs) I would like to see that in the base game, though, not in Barbarian Clans mode, but just as something we can always do. If somebody is attacking our city-state, that we have some say in uh, what happens there. And we can't, and we can actually do something before they get captured. Yes. And also so that we don't have to go to full war to defend them either. That yeah. would be nice. And get a bunch of grievances and warmonger hate. Yeah, while defending somebody from an attack, you get grievances and warmonger. It's kind of ridiculous. I mean, Civ Five didn't really do it particularly well when they just gave you a leader pop-up every time one of them attacked your city-state. But at least they gave you something. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, there could be a, a notification, you know, on the side. Uh, like, I think Beyond Earth did that for things like declaration or uh, certain diplomatic messages. Instead of just popping up the full screen leader screen in the middle of the, you know, CPU turns, they would appear as notifications on the side of the screen that you would click on when you wanted to see it or just dismiss them because you don't care. I think yeah. The main issue as well, it does do that in 6. It's only as a tiny thing of you've earned grievances because someone declared on your friend slash city state, and it's very easy to overlook that. Yeah, there there really needs to be like a better event log that it makes it easier to keep track of all this stuff. I think they added one finally. There is, but I've, I think I've tried using it, and I still, it, I don't know, maybe I have to try it again and look at it some more, but I'm just never impressed with it. I'm not impressed with the the whole icons on the side either, because sometimes they just don't go away. Yeah, it's like, UI stuff in general, well... A lot of them you have to plenty. manually dismiss, yeah. I like the design of the UI, it just needs more functionality. Like, it needs to actually work and not yeah. be as obtuse as it is. Yeah, and when there's a lot of notifications like that, it would be nice to just have like a screen that you can pop up that just shows them all in a list, instead of having to hover over the icon to see what each and every one of them means. Yeah. Or maybe, or maybe... A, a shortcut key that you hold, like you hold the shift key or something, and the text pops up on uh, all of them. Or maybe make the icon 
distinctive of what happened as opposed to just a picture of the same thing every time. Like, I liked how Civ Five did it better, even though it was more obtrusive on the, on the eyes. But you could always tell from a, from a glance what actually happened. Because yeah. the, if it was a sieve that did something, it showed the flag of that sieve next to whatever happened. And if it was like a, decla- a declaration of war, it would say, X has declared on X with a sword between both flags. So, and you could see that without having to test so, to wander over the thing and see the text. And yeah. I wish they did that in Civ Six too, because yeah. that was better. Civ Six is just somebody declared war on somebody, maybe somewhere. Which, to be honest, if it says somebody has declared war on an unmet civilization, I shouldn't be seeing that. Well, because I should not know about that. If you know one civilization or the other. I guess it's relevant, but yeah, if you're playing on continents and it happens on the other continent where you haven't met either, then yeah, we probably don't need that notification. Well, then there's also the fact that sometimes it's just the city-states that that happens to. An unmet civilization has been destroyed! <laughs> who, 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 who were they? Will we ever find them? It was just Carthage. Again. <laughs> Again. Because they built too many biremes and not enough land units. So, so guys, I... what do you think is the over-under on AI handling of aircraft actually being something resembling competent? Well, yeah. if they actually build them and use them, that's like an infinite percent improvement. <laughs> that's true, but that doesn't make it good. <laughs> I have seen one AI airplane before. Yeah, me one. too. I even talked about it on the show. It was like my big announcement for the week. I saw an AI air unit. Well, that's what my uh, that's why I'm saying this, right? Like the idea of improving AI handling of aircraft is a very low bar, so that you don't need to do very much to say that you have improved it. <laughs> a 100 percent increase would be seeing two planes. So yeah, I mean, honestly, yeah, I, I would seen. be content if all the AI is doing is just building the darn things, so that at least when I'm bombing them back into the Stone Age, I get intercepted from time to time. Like, for me, that's all it needs. It did show them using the planes, so um, maybe that'll be okay. I I suspect having anti-air will be good enough against the AI, but we'll see. Anti-air is pretty good if you are actually fighting planes. Yeah. Because if your ally has anti-air, it will shoot down your planes, too. Because there's a bug. Yeah, I, I just don't want to be able to like conquer an entire AI civilization because I have one bomber. That would take too long. Build I mean, no one got time for that crap. But yeah, and I know what you mean. Well, I mean, there's there's <laughs> land units too, but you know, you've got a bomber taking out a third of the you know city's defenses in like one turn, and there's absolutely no resistance to it from the AI. Thunderbolt, whatever. I, I feel like the late game AI is like that regardless, because you can just fire at it with artillery. From off screen? Yeah, kill like you, get, you kill its units with artillery, and you, then you shoot at its cities, which can't shoot back. And once they have enough, like once you have them as armies with enough uh, promotions and a general, they just melt cities. It's disgusting. And like anytime the AI musters another unit, it'll move it close by, and you can just like shred it in one turn. And still have some firepower left over to unload on the cities. It's pretty disgusting once you're leveled up like that. That's late game lightning warfare for you. Yeah. Yeah, so like unless the AI air power is 
enough that is threatening that, despite investing in some anti-air, it probably won't be too scary. But we'll see. We'll see. Well, one of the biggest threats of air units is that they're like one of the few unit types that's actually allowed to stack. So you're potentially having like you know something like was it three or four fighters or bombers in one city at a time, which can all make their ranged attack in the same turn, as opposed to a land unit, which you know you've got maybe one ranged unit or one siege unit in there, and you know maybe if it's a coastal city, you uh, can throw a, a naval unit in there too for an extra bombardment. Uh, so yeah, being, if the AI is actually putting them in their cities and using them either offensively or defensively, that's a lot of extra bombardment against your invading artillery. And they'll actually have the range to hit your artillery, too. Yeah. Didn't they tweak the, the airplane stacking not too long ago? Like, I know the originally, like, at launch, air drones used to be able to hold up to eight, and now I think it's only four, and it's, like, one in a city. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, I think it's three or four, I think it's, yeah, one or two in a city, and, like, three or four in an aerodrome, and I think an airstrip is three... Uh, I could be wrong, but you can also build the hangar and airport, which increases the capacity, so. I wonder yeah, if they're going to mess with what happens when you capture an aerodrome with hostile planes in there. Oh, here, here's a suggestion for Firaxis. I don't know if this is going to be in the update, but it would be nice if aircraft carriers could have an opportunity to gain experience for a change. Maybe aircraft carriers should get, like, a small amount of the experience that the air units that launch from the carrier receive. <laughs> That way you don't have to throw your aircraft carrier into the front lines and let it tank attacks just to get some experience and, you know, promote it for a change. What promotions does it even get? Well, one of them is really good. One of the Tier 1 promotions is extra uh, unit capacity, so it increases from two planes to three planes. There's also that's good... one that's, there's also a late one which basically all, all aircraft that are based on this carrier also heal every turn. <laughs> yeah, I think that's like the tier four promotion, yeah, which good luck good getting, luck getting it. But yeah, that's uh, quite useful. I think the only time I ever get promotions on an aircraft carrier is when I like burn an admiral that has the benefit of giving the unit a promotion, and I use that on the carrier. Yeah, that that's a really good use for that. It makes me think of in Civ Five. I think in Civ Five, the carrier's only promotion was like armor plating for just defense. I think it had movement movement speed too. I think. Yeah, it probably did. Yeah, the usual stuff like supply and movement, but otherwise it was just more defense, more defense, more defense. Well, in Civ Five, if I recall correctly, the aircraft carriers at least could attack. Like they weren't particularly great on attack, but if you've got like an enemy caravel, you know, sitting around, like yeah, sure, go ahead and sink it with your carrier, get some uh, free experience. Like in Civ Six, I'm pretty sure the carriers are defensive only, so you can't even do that. I don't think I've ever built a carrier in Civ Six. I think I've built them a couple of times and only ever really used them to bring stealth bombers to the other side of the map to drop thermal nukes. Yeah, the few times I've done naval games, I just won with battleships because they're so good. I didn't know you could put the bombers on a carrier in Civ Six. But now maybe if the AI is using planes, then it would behoove you to have some fighters for intercepting. Since I, I don't think you're going to be putting anti-air guns <laughs> from land into your boats and having them shoot down aircraft in the water. Well, theoretically, that's what your missile cruisers are doing. Yeah, yeah. Once you have them. We have destroyers for that. Do, do, yeah, I guess, I guess destroyers do have some anti-air. They're not very good at it, though, are they? 55, I think, isn't it? <laughs> I don't know. I've never had an opportunity to test it. <laughs> yeah, they not have any air. <laughs> 
Yeah, I've never actually had opposing <laughs> hostile skies. But yeah, I'm pretty sure both destroyers <laughs> and battleships and also missile carriers have uh, inherent anti-air interception functionality. Do, is it just anti-air when they're attacked, or do they actually intercept attacks on adjacent tiles as well? I think they all intercept at a range of one. I think the only unit that does two is probably the mobile SAM support units, but I could be wrong. And how do you um overlapping anti-air work on the ground. I think it's just one yeah, attack one at a time. Yeah. Take turns. Mm. So if there's multiple attacks on that tile, then each, you know, anti-air, you know, makes one interception. Okay. And they're limited in the number of interceptions they get per turn. And one of, one of the things that I... Yes, uh, I believe they are. I think it's just one or two interceptions per turn. Uh... One of the things that I also hope is that I hope that the naval unit's anti-air capability does not end up being too strong. So if it is already strong, I kind of hope that they nerf it so that having aircraft carriers and air support on sea becomes more, you know, valuable. Yeah, I don't know how you can model it compared to how, like, actual history handled uh, naval aviation in, like, World War II and such. Because there were places that ships just wouldn't go because the threat of naval bombers was too high. But at the same time, like Civ just doesn't model that on scale in a way that it would make sense. So yeah, I don't know. I, I don't want navies to be like completely helpless uh, to air power either. But maybe if air power is heavy, you really should need some fighters on an interceptor or something. Right, but at the same time, I don't want you know it to be trivially easy for your navy to defend itself from attacking aircraft because they all have anti-air capabilities. Like the planes can't hit submarines, I think, to begin with. So you're only attacking destroyers and battleships and carriers, which have built-in anti-air. So you know that, that's my theory: I... is that you end up just having so much anti-air capability on the ships themselves that you know, attacking them with airplanes just isn't viable. I feel like, at money. minimum, bombers should be able to hit subs. And I could be I, I think it's kind of ridiculous they can't. Maybe planes in Civ 6 can hit subs. Maybe I'm, I'm thinking of Axis and Allies rules. Uh, but like I said, I just, I've, I've never seen it in Civ 6 against the AI, so I don't know. Yeah, I, I haven't tested these interactions easy. much at all. The, uh, but there's, like, easy. it is against history that planes are not a threat to subs. They, they really should be able to hit them. Well, if, they, if they're spotted, of course. My understanding historically is that planes were used for spotting subs, but then they actually had to send, like, a destroyer over to drop the depth charges to actually destroy it. Uh, tor- torpedo bombers could be a threat, because subs true. spent the vast majority of their time, especially the World War II subs, uh, they spent the vast majority of their time on the surface. So not only could they be spotted, but they could be hit. Yeah, you do a strafing run. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, the bombing wasn't that sophisticated back then. If you're using a torpedo bomber, you're probably doing something that resembles a strafing run. And yeah. submarine anti-air is limited. Like they could kind of like shoot at a plane or something. But they're probably not gonna, probably not gonna challenge that. It's one of the things that probably doesn't work on the scale of a civilization game. But it would be interesting if subs in the game actually did have to like submerge and like come up to the surface like they had like a a charge timer or something on them for how many turns they could be under the water before they had to come up and they were visible to all units and susceptible to uh, air attack and other sources of bombardment yeah I think it should just be a matter of spotting them like the idea sounds cool but 
it just doesn't work uh, when a turn is like a year or something. It's kind of weird. And speaking of subs, uh, my experience also has been that the AI doesn't build them very often, so it would be nice if the AI would build more subs. Yeah, I've seen a couple. I think it's just based so they usually tend to focus their oil more on tanks and stuff. Yeah, well, and I, I think they also don't build very many privateers. They focus mostly on caravels and frigates, so they don't have the privateers to upgrade to subs, and if they do, they usually get killed before they can upgrade to subs. Because the, the AI just does not build very many units after, like, the medieval era, era in general. So any, like, new unit types that pop up, like, after that, just don't show up very often, because the AI never builds them. Unless they have the Cultist Society, and then they suddenly have a hundred of those. Well, yeah, unless you're playing <laughs> with the alternate game rules. Yeah. What do you mean? The you know, the most pure version of Civ is all game rules active. Oh, God. Oh, dear. That would be a fiesta for sure. Well, speaking of game rules, the leader selection poll is just a nice, convenient feature to have. Yeah, it's been requested several times. You can just... Say so, yeah, I don't. I don't want some of these people, or I want only from this list, etc. It's it's actually very robust from what I saw. You yeah. can set multiple different pools that have different options based on what you want to see. Like you can make a pool of only aggressive leaders and a pool of only uh, peaceful leaders, and you can put separate pools in different slots on, in the game. Now, my big question is, is this leader pool only for opponent AI civilizations, or can you set this up for, like, your own random picker? Because the thing I've complained about many times in the past is, I don't want to play as these civilizations, because I've already played them. I want a random civ that I haven't played with yet. Yeah, this looks like it could handle it. This looks uh, better than I would have expected for a mechanic like this. So I'm, I'm pretty impressed by the selection pool that they're showing off. It's almost Steam Workshop mod quality. <laughs> That's it. I mean, there's, there's good ones on the workshop, so... Oh, yeah, yeah. Level. For any particular game, like, the, the very best mods tend to be just freaking amazing. If, as long talking as it's a sufficiently of, popular game. Which one are you talking about? Are you talking about the one in Hearts of Iron or the one in U4? I think the uh, the tip-top mods in both cases are very impressive. But I've also heard a lot of good things about the uh, Total War games before that that got submarined by the company, for example. Um, some of the mod maps and mods for Dominions are just excellent. Like, <laughs> it, it, pretty much any game I've played recently that has mods be a viable thing, so like, not like Rocket League or something, they've just been great. Now, there's, there's, there's just like tons and tons of garbage, but if you sift through it, uh, you know, at the top of the, top of the pool... The best modders are really good, so yeah. Yeah, it's a shame Rocket League doesn't exist anymore. <laughs> mm. I, I have the grandfathered in experience with that, man. Screw Epic. I'm curious, what did Epic do to Rocket League? They bought it and then took it off of Steam and made them all made everybody who had it play on a Steam server on an Epic server and have an Epic account, which means China has all their information. Those bastards. Yeah, pretty much. I never played it, but I had several friends who did, so that uh, that's a bummer for them. Yeah. Well, Should you can like... always you can always tell which game developers don't think their game is very good because they go with Epic exclusivity because they it's don't think they can make their money back. It's probably the point where we should point out that I think it might be clear where we've played Civ Six. 
Yeah, we didn't let uh, somebody take the food out of the developers' children's mouths. We're all on we the paid Switch. for our games. <laughs> yeah. Damn epic. So I don't know what national natural wonder reworks and rebalance means in totality. They literally just showed one thing, and it was the Cliffs of Dover buff. Yeah, pretty that much. Trying very hard to trying very hard to, very hard to make more, it not suck. At least the at least the decision that works this can now feed itself. I liked the um the, the tone of that announcement, which was kinda like a tongue in cheek. We fixed Cliffs of Dover, now sit down and shut up. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. They added uh, adjacency for Great Barrier Reef to the campus, finally. Yes, finally. Oh yeah, I forgot that wasn't a base game thing. I've had that as a mod for so long. That should have been the case even before they added regular reefs that give campus adjacency, like well, yeah, it, yeah. Kind of, it was kind of weird that the regular reefs did, but Great Reefs didn't. It was even more odd, especially because Great Barrier Reef is now listed as appears as a reef. So you think it would have automatically had the reef effect? Now the, but the no, question yeah. though is, is how often can you actually get a campus adjacent to the Great Barrier Reef? Because isn't it always like one? Isn't there always one water tile between the land and the Great Barrier Reef? No, I thought it was. Not I thought always. it was always adjacent. Oh, I'm, Sometimes you know, I'm thinking of the Galapagos Islands. Yeah, Galapagos yeah. are spread out. I've actually had a Bermuda Triangle that, well, I don't know if this was a base game or because of a mod, but it actually appeared on the coast. What's the yield for that? Um, base game, it's plus five science to all adjacent tiles. Oh uh, my goodness. Terra Mirabilis nerfed it to hell. I can see why they did. Yeah, I think it's now just one food, one gold, one science to adjacent in the mod. So I'm wondering if they're going to end up doing a nerf like that for the base game, or if they're just going to leave it as this super broken, but very rarely can you use it sort of natural wonder. Kind of like Krakatoa. Kind of like Krakatoa. <laughs> I was going to mention Krakatoa. Oh yeah, speaking of mods, Civ 5 had some excellent ones too, including the AI mod. So did Civ 4. Oh yeah, yeah never some Sif amazing Sif stuff. I, you know, I, for as much as I played Sifar, I never did give their mods much of a look because that was before it was as convenient to install mods generally. Now that's I put on like an altered gameplay, like the UI mods and stuff, the Hall of Fame mod in particular, and so so on. But uh, yeah, I didn't like check out any of the total conversion mods, but stuff like Fall from Heaven was very well reputed. You should try Vault from Heaven too, because it's got the kind of thing that you would like. It's got some Dominions kind of stuff in it. <laughs> Hellblitz Anakites, let's go. Well, there's a, a Doomsday counter in it, if that makes you feel any better. Okay. It's called Cataclysm in Dominions, but yeah. Some nations get uh, get bonuses to d- getting that pushed up, and some have bonuses to keeping it down, and if you uh, push it up too high, disasters start happening. You know, that kind of thing. But you also have evil religions in that. Of course. Well, evil religions is basically anybody else's. Oh, it's the Sanguine Pact. <laughs> I, I wonder if... Nope, not going to qu- make that question. Go on. Ignore me. Also, government uh, policy card slot changes. I don't, uh, I don't know, don't know to yet. what extent they're going with that. Nobody we don't know yet about it. So. Yeah. Speculation? Nah. We'll find out next week. 
it did scare so, me. Yeah, presumably it would, they're changing it so that it's more like you would expect, but... Yeah, I don't well, know if that's exactly what they said. I'm guessing if maybe they did made it so that like autocracy has the or, or sorry, oligarchy has the combat bonus and also more military policy slots, you know, so that you actually use it for warmongering. Whereas autocracy gets would should get the stuff that was Roman. If you were doing a rush, the, the oligarchy bonus was worth even more than the military slots. Kind of in the early game. I'm kind of halfway joking here, but I almost feel like autocracy should just be four wild card slots. I mean, you <laughs> are like the absolute ruler after all. You can do whatever you want. But anyway, yeah, we'll find out a bit more about that uh, next week. I wonder if that would make me use it. Probably not. Probably just go oligarchy and kill things still, but you know, it's an option. Anyway, sticking with the topic of uh, balance changes, uh, Firaxis also announced, or at least it was reported on uh, gaming sites, that the April update is going to rebalance, what do they say, two-thirds of all of two-thirds. the civilizations in the game. Uh, I'm assuming those are mostly going to be like legacy civs from Vanilla and Rise and Fall and stuff like that. I, I Unless they're nerfing some of the newer ones, but... I don't know. I would assume they're probably going to be buffing the old ones. Might That's usually the direction power mode. creep goes. Mm. I think it's probably the most sensible option to be buffing them, because I think... I, I suppose there's more case if you try and nerf the newer ones, then you're kind of, in theory, you're mostly taking away their unique playstyle and basically making them generic. Yeah. So you kind of have to go the other way of power creeping. Yeah, and that's how most games go. So I would be surprised if we don't see it here too. And then there'll be a new worst sieve, like always. But eh. maybe it will Fine. suddenly be Grand Colombia. <laughs> who, who knows? Spain might finally be useful. Oh, Spain is man. great. Poor Spain. I, I just love it when I when I join a turn cast and somebody rolls Spain. Like its entire existence is justified. Listening to the disgust over randoming Spain. <laughs> Nothing against our Spanish listeners. We just don't like them in game. Oh, well, it's just a, it's not a strong civilization in the game. Yeah. Since there are so many other cities that have the same effects but better. I wonder if uh, England it's... will change two more times before this happens. Because I always feel like whenever they rebalance old civs, England is always the one that has their like unique ability just completely replaced. <laughs> Yeah, they they have had it happen twice, haven't they? I, at least. <laughs> yeah. Over on Symphonatics user Insidious Mage. I was asking the question of whether game modes should become a recurring feature for the Civilization series. Given that um, these recent updates from the new Frontier Pass have been adding all of these fancy new optional game modes, like, should is this kind of now expected from major Civilization releases in the future that they come with these optional things so you can toggle on and off right at the start? Before we say yes or no, I would like to point out that game modes is a recurring feature already in mainline Civ games, even yeah. dating back to Civ 2. Yep. In a way, yeah. Does those anybody remember Regicide? 
like if they had total conversion modes in Civ Two, and they also had game modes in Civ Four. Now, are you talking about the, that included scenarios or modifiers for the uh, regular game? I'm talking about like the scenarios themselves. Like you had like some XCOM crossover stuff in Civ Two, even. Well, that's the difference. Like those are probably considered, you know, full scenarios and total conversion mods, whereas these are like minor optional game choices that have yeah, I guess not the, quite the, a significant impact on the game, but at least they have they change a few things around that you might not necessarily want to have them on all the time. The big difference. Well, okay, but then where do you draw the line between something like corporations mode versus just ticking off barbarians and having a no barbarians mode? Well, there's that, but it is different I mean, than a total conversion mod or scenario because you're not like modularly picking multiple scenarios that all you know work simultaneously. So I think there's definitely a hard line between those two things. Uh, now, the difference between these game modes and you know just options in the game setup is a little bit fuzzier. Yeah. Well, remember, Civ Four and previous Civs also had things like. Um, raging barbarians and no tech trades and things you like toggle that. Toggle on vassal states versus not. My gosh, did that change the game? Probably more than some of the Civ Six game modes changed the game. Yeah, that's that was just a uh, checkbox. That that particular checkbox would definitely be on bar on par with any of the uh, game modes in Civ Six for sure. There was also a no corporations option. There was a. Uh, what was it? Uh, random leaders and civilization. So that oh, unrestricted have, too. Unrestricted leaders is what I was talking about. And then you had um, <laughs> what? What was what was the one? Always war. Yeah, oh was, yeah, it was always war. I that think was, there was nasty. An always peace. And yeah. I think there was also like a like there was a thing where you could have peace for like the first X turns, and I. There was also a forced one city challenge, which changed your national wonder rules and just didn't yeah. let you capture or found new cities. And then in previous games before that, in Civ Three, I know there was a regicide mode, which you have a king, and if he dies, you lose. Yep. And there like were lots of things like that. And then there were also yeah. modifiers like uh, where was it like total elimination or whatever where not only do you have to kill all the other players cities but you have to track down every one of their units in order to remove them from the game otherwise yeah you just, yeah. You just I don't have miss that you'd have stray units floating around the map from civilizations that don't exist anymore usually my experience would be they would just uh park in the uh uh snow caps <laughs> somewhere and just sit there <laughs> for the rest of the game uh so yeah it was a total crap like pointless modifier but it was there my history of playing RTS games. That was annoying. Yeah. I don't know if searching a map the... of Command... Oh, go, go ahead. No, I've, you just go had ahead. En- I've had enough of searching a map of Command and Conquer for the last AI harvester or light infantry that went to the top left corner of the map. It was so appreciated when they added the... You know, like they, they don't have a um, resource or a uh, worker-producing structure any longer. So we're just going to reveal all their buildings. That was a good idea by Blizzard back in the day. I remember Star Wars Empire at War did that too. That's one of the only RTSs that I've played recently. Or relatively recently. That was 20 years ago, but... That was a good game. No, 15 years ago. Oh, I'm getting, I'm getting old enough to remember how many decades it was. Oh my god. <laughs> I think about that. Anyway, on but, the topic... So, 
go ahead. Yeah. So on the topic of whether or not game modes should continue to exist, I think that's a resounding yes. I have one caveat, and that is as long as it does not completely replace full expansion packs. Because I like the Civilization expansion pack model. Like, every expansion that I've played for a Civilization game since Civilization 4, I thought, has been really good. So I hope they do not uh, stop doing full expansions and instead just replace them with these modular uh, game modes. Yeah, and to I... what degree they should be modular is a point of debate, too. I, I saw some discussion about that in the thread. But it's nice to have toggleable options that you can you can change whether they're in the game or not. Because they still, I mean, yeah, there's, they don't interact as much as if they were all fully integrated. Uh, but you can still have quite a bit of interaction between modular mechanics in principle. And I would say Civ Six does a reasonable job with a lot of their stuff in practice that makes it into the base game as toggleable options. Uh, to the extent that it would be interesting to see some of these game modes interact more. I like the idea of something like Vassal States being a toggle option more than having it be a separate game mode that you can't also enable, like, Barbarian Clans or something. I forget, can you disable... Are you actually saying you you want Vassal States back? I I was giving it as an example. (laughs) I was going to say, you've been very vocal about Vassal States over the years. Well, here's the thing. Um, Capitulation Vassals could be annoying, but they're also very convenient. Uh, Peace Vassals had no place in the game with the way they were implemented. (laughs) So, do I want Vassal States back? Possibly, but with a pretty heavy rework from what we had back then. (laughs) <laughs> just like you could put something in the game again and call it the Apostolic Palace just don't make it work like Civ 4s and, and we'll be fine yeah talking about uh, like <laughs> expansion mechanics that are toggleable like you know Gathering Storm you can basically turn disasters off and that's like the big you know cover feature of the entire expansion I feel yeah. like turning disasters off is kind of cheap but then again I enjoy weather, so... Well, I, I don't know if they go all the way off or if they just go to, like, a minimum setting. I, I forget whether... There it is a minimum, zero. yeah. Yeah, I, I think it, it goes down to one, but at that point, it's, like... This is zero. ...pretty much a moot consideration in the game. Yeah. They, go, they go between zero and four, and so obviously three and four is when it starts really going mental. As someone who really likes the apocalypse mode, I uh, personally love heavy weather. It makes you not want to settle on rivers. One of the Lesser problems Egypt. that, that uh, I had with Vietnam in uh, in the game that I've been playing this past uh, two weeks uh, or so has been because I have so many more woods and rainforests all over the place. My districts keep oh, yep. on fire and burning down. <laughs> yeah, entire empire is on fire at once. It's a, it's a shame. It's a shame you were playing Vietnam and not Australia. Yeah, when when global warming started kicking in, and I'm at like level three or four of global warming in the game. Like I have like my ent- the entire core of my civilization right now is like on fire. At certain times of the year, it's also like California, but... Yeah, my my Vietnamese civilization has turned into Southern California in my current Civ Six game. And here we have a satellite view of the Vietnamese Empire. Oh, it's a ball of fire. See, I don't don't like the degree of RNG some of that stuff introduces. Because at some point, it starts being more decisive than your choices. Well, So, yeah, I like that it's an option that you can pick... Where you want the where the you where you want the game to handle it to your preferences. To the game's but, credit and to your point, uh, in the game's defense, I am burning like two thirds of the world's fossil fuels, 
Uh, I'm burning. <laughs> I was burning like two thousand units of fossil fuels per turn, or something like that. Uh, okay. To like a few hundred from each of the other civilizations. So it was kind of my fault. All right. If you're like intentionally wrecking the world, well, it it's wasn't, fine. It, whatever. It wasn't really intentional. It was just the fact that I own like half of the world's landmass. So. Uh, and I had a lot of industrial hubs all over the place and was like, oh, I'll just build some uh, coal and oil factories. Like, what could go wrong? And, like, before I knew it, global warming was just completely out of control. And there was like, I'm, I'm doing policy brings results. Yeah, I'm doing If you have that many cities, it's not going to influence the outcome of the game any longer either, though. No, yeah, you're, you're right. At this point, it is just an inconvenience, but it's, you know, it's still it's kind of funny. Yeah. What I, what I really hated about it in, like, in the Civ 4 days is that if you got the wrong kinds of events early, not not just the Vitagarians, but, and that's the poster child for it, because that could just kill you without any uh, recourse. Uh, but even when they patched that, you could still get a sequence of events that effectively ruined your opening and cost you, like, a huge amount of time. Like, it, more than the difference between a good versus great player, just on events alone. And that's a bit extreme. I, I don't like to see that kind of stuff in the game. Yeah, like having your library burn down 20. or something like that. Yeah, Instead or like you get the blizzard. equivalent of like chain whipping your capital due to forest fires, and there's like nothing you could do about it. <laughs> see, I don't mind it so much in Civ Six because there are me- underlying mechanics that cause the disasters, uh, so there a lot more. There's a lot more perceivable consequence behind them. And I also don't mind them as much because they start out really benign and almost trivial to deal with, and they they progressively get more disruptive as the game goes on. Yeah, the design of them is much better in Civ 6 than 4. And and going back to our previous point about things like Vassals and the Apostolic Palace, like, yeah, we're okay with these sorts of mechanics coming back as long as you make them not (laughs) suck anymore. And they have the slider for disaster, so you can put it where you want it. Like they're like, they, right. as it, it's as good as I could ask for right. for as a mechanic to like Civ that. Four, where it was turn disaster or random events on or off. You know, there was no toggles or no sliders for severity or anything like that. It was just they're on or they're off. And no sanity checking for impact on the game. Whereas in Civ Six, if you're playing with like modest disasters or whatever, the, the odds of you getting completely hosed by a single event pretty remote, especially since a lot of them are constrained by terrain choices. So you're even further having agency on how they interact with you. Yeah, if you settled... That just wasn't there previously. Yeah, if you settled next to a volcano or floodplains and you have districts destroyed by that volcano or those floodplains, that is on as much on you as it is on the RNG. You don't have to put the districts on the floodplains either. That's... (laughs) At least not before you put the dam up or whatever. Well, that's also true. Right. So, yeah, like you said, the player has a lot of agency in just how impactful these disasters are going to be. Yeah. So anyway, the long and short of it is, I, I don't know that I, I like dedicated game modes that are exclusive to the rest of the content, but game modes themselves are cool and have been with the Civ franchise for a long time. Yeah, it's just now they're being marketed least, differently. At least one thing they've done that they've done that's nice with this section is they have a nice split between you know some barely some things that are barely modifiers and some things that are almost like full fantasy, like Heroes and Legends. <laughs> Yeah, societies, that sort of stuff. But you know, it's okay to have fun and have re- you know weird thoughts. You know, Civ doesn't have to be all one hundred percent realistic. Yeah, and I'm happy we can have our own fantasies of great men of history and women. 
Yeah, and I'm really happy to finally see the historic game modes that they promised when all of this started, like, finally starting to come out, because I was actually starting to get a little bit worried here that uh, they weren't going to be as historic as they promised, because I wasn't totally keen on, you know, like, the, the fantasy, you know, vampires and zombies and stuff like that in the game, but now the corporations and this barbarian game mode, these are the two that I have, like, the most interest in, and I will actually probably play these quite a bit. Heroes of Legends is pretty fun. Oh, Red Death. Uh... <laughs> now that's a, that's a different kind of game mode. And we don't talk about that. Well, I mean, you gotta have a, a Battle Royale. I mean, that's the big hit these days. Sigh. <laughs> as long as there's not loot boxes. Don't say that. You know what's yeah. gonna happen. <laughs> I would not be surprised if we don't get some sort of a skin system for leaders. Corax is purchased by Epic Games. And, and here's here's a nope. big thing for me as well is if these if they're able to sell these micro game modes and that means that they don't start putting in like cosmetics and loot boxes and like all these 99 cent microtransactions then yes, definitely they are absolutely worth it if it avoids those things. Uh, but at the same time, like, I also worry about the slippery slope. They're like, oh, well, these little micro game modes are successful. We should put more of them in the game. And then, yeah, before you know it, we have, like Canis said, uh, leader skins on sale for 99 cents a piece. And uh, who knows, maybe regional unit skins on sale for 99 cents a piece. And, like, there's all kinds of things that I can imagine that they could do that I absolutely do not want them to do. You think unit skins will be sold for for a dollar? Yeah, you're right. Our doc laughs at you. Yeah, judging by what some other companies do. Yeah, just wait for the 2K Epic merger, then we'll see plenty. That's the only no. thing. I think. That's Don't the ever thing. say such a horrible thing. Never. And those two can also merge with Electronic Arts. Oh, you're giving me a heart attack. All right, Phil, stop <laughs> killing Canis. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't want to see this crap either. That's because there's still there's still a topic to introduce. <sighs> still two, if we can get to them. Who's the next producer? It's me, isn't it? It is. It is me. Irrational district placements for aesthetic reasons. This is a thread by, as soon as it opens, I'll tell you. An enemy? An uncross enemy, I think. Ah. That would be good. Okay, so this person wants to know how many players put places in in, in irrational places because they look cool. For instance, a oracle next to a holy unit with a sh- or holy site with a shrine, or a Venetian arsenal or Broadway next to a city center, uh, entertainment complex next to a water park, or a spaceport next to an aerodrome. I think most people can guess my answer to this thread. No. Aesthetics? No. Question mark. <laughs> well, you don't like the, the you don't like this hodgepodge of like about twenty districts just all smushed together. I oh, if I can make is... like an awful Eldritch Horror of Checkermark bullcrap, then yeah. <laughs> but that's efficient. assuming I'm not just building more <laughs> encampments and units. <laughs> oh, so that's what. Oh, so we look over at your empire, and all we see are nameplates because of all of the cities and encampments. 
I mean, look at all the five swordsman wonders. Yeah. Now, to be fair, I also build range units, and eventually, later on, siege. They just built a battering ram. And went to <laughs> so, what you're saying is you would build the statue of Zeus. If if I'm not too busy, yeah, I'm building units to rush somebody out. It, it's hard the to get wonders like Zeus, that. The statue of Zeus gives you one units. Yeah, but it's hard to get it reliably when you need it for early wars on high difficulties. Like it's not reliable enough for my tastes, to put it mildly. It also has to be on flatland as well, doesn't it? Which makes it even more of a bane because usually you might be putting the encampment on a hill. Yeah. Yeah, and you want you want that classical slash medieval general. If you're going for an early uh, war against an AI, you, you you really need that. It makes a big difference. If you're stacking that with oligarchy, you can actually overcome the AI bonuses, especially if they don't pick oligarchy. Yeah, I definitely do take aesthetics uh, into uh, consideration when I'm you know planning districts and stuff, but like very rarely to the point where that supersedes like the actual like yields or whatever that I'm going to get out of them. Just be a robotic optimizer. It's the most fun, quote-unquote. I find optimization to be the most boring kind of problem. <sighs> yeah, unfortunately. Sometimes that's true. But yeah, I, I will sit sometimes for like several minutes like debating on which side of the wonder I want to build my theater square on. You know, because which side will it look better on? <laughs> Now that is so foreign to me. I can't remember the last time I placed a district or made choices in other games where if that like even entered my frame of mind. Well, for the most part, picking something. for the most part, placement like something of something like that is largely dictated by like the actual game state, where it's like uh, there's you know the adjacencies mean I'm going to put it in a particular place because that's where it's going to get the most adjacency but every now yeah. and then there's a situation where you know it could go in like one of two or three places and it would be functionally identical or like so similar like as to not be that big of a deal and at that point you know i will stop and sit there and think about it for a bit which of these options will be prettier you know what i think about in that context is even though it's remote what's what's the hardest to reach for opposing stuff which costs me the more t- the more tiles I have to buy. Well, that too, but usually that falls under the first consideration then, because you're getting equal adjacency, and one's available right now, and one isn't. You just put it there where it's available. But if you have like literally equal yields, and there's no like future plans or whatever, then I will favor the one that's further away from enemy cities slash military units. Even though there's like virtually no chance they'll ever be there. That's like where my mind goes. I don't even think about how it looks. <laughs> yes, if I had aesthetics in mind, I wouldn't be putting this... I wouldn't be putting my diplomatic quarter next to this encampment that is like smack dab in the middle of my cities that are settled as close as possible. Well, I think you can send the right message to opposing civilizations by putting your encampment next to that thing, so you're fair enough. I still haven't built a diplomatic quarter. <laughs> They're kind of sucky. Yeah, they need they they don't pay off immediately, but you you get used to them over time because, well, especially now that they split up the envoy bonuses to be partially directly into the buildings and partially into the diplo quarter building. 
it doesn't the Diplo Quarter like give you the most benefits if like the other civs are sending trade routes to that city? Mm, I don't. Well, I don't know. I'm not sure. I thought it was just that it gets, gives you all your envoy bonuses and it gives you more influence essentially. I'd have to. Do it's actually, and it's it's also good if you kill spies in the city with it. Or I think that's actually empire wide, but. Yeah, I keep forgetting what the heck it actually does, which is usually not good. <laughs> yeah, it's an anti. I think by default it starts off. It's an anti-spy thing. Basically, spies are less effective in the districts around it. And they're even less effective later on. And yeah, then it gives you part of your envoy bonuses from city-states. As well as more influence. That's pretty much it, I think. I could have swore there was something that had to do with the trade routes going through the city, but maybe it got patched out or I misread something somewhere. Who knows? It's possible it did, and I just could be overlooking as well, and I think of it just as anti-espionage. No, I'm looking at the... the um, wiki right now and I'm not seeing what I was expecting to see so apparently I'm just misremembering I think I've only built like two of them so far so to me the annoying thing about it is that it's just it's it's specialty so if you're trying yeah. to actually build it with your government plaza that's two of your specialties taken up and that requires either a lot of population or you gotta give up your your holy site your campus your commercial hub etc your enchantment district yeah, I would definitely give it a much harder look if it were not a specialty district. So that brings us to... This has been a Polycast episode, of which number I have forget- forgotten. 378. This has been Polycast 378. I am one of your hosts, Candice Albinus, and I have been joined with uh, our usual hosts, the me and team. That's right, your next district is an encampment. Mega Bears fan? I am eagerly waiting wide vaccine distribution so that I can play the new expansion for Civilization A New Dawn, Terra Incognita. Board game. And our Mackie fill-in for the week, The Christy. Hope I don't get, end up under however much snow that Mackie's under now. I don't know how much snow they got. I think they just got a lot of ice. That's probably worse. Yeah. You guessed it. It's another encampment district. I thought that's probably where I am. Shoot. Why did I do it this way? Good job. This city will also build an encampment district. Civilization 3, 4, 5, Beyond Earth, 6, Sound Clips, Copyright Take 2, Interactive. Copyright the Polycast at thepolycast.net.